How's it going, folks? How's it going? I'm Brother Matthew, and this is Christian Coffee Time, where we sit down together to study the Word of God. And here we are, back at it again. Uh, it's been a while. Yes, I know. It's It's been a little while since uh, we've actually done an actual Saturday Q&A, but here we are, back at it again. So I know we've been changing some things up and uh, unforeseen circumstances with some of it, but uh, here we are. So if you got any comments, questions, issues, insights, go ahead, ask away. Be glad to hear from you. Uh, we answer things in sequence of order. They come in. And uh, yeah, so again, what we do here is uh, for Saturday, our tradition is we kind of just open up the floor. So whatever's on your heart, whatever's on your mind, whatever you would like to talk about, we what we try to do is take every topic, everything that comes up, and we bring it to the Bible to see what does the Word of God have to say on it. How can we address these things, look into these things from a proper biblical standpoint? And as you saw, um, we have a trigger warning for this video contains proper biblical content that progressives will find offensive. So please keep that in mind. Uh, that if you want to hear the Bible, if you care about the Word of God, if you love the Holy Scriptures, then this is the place for you. So we stand upon the Word of God and we don't care about feelings. We don't care about societal dictation. We don't care about uh, catechisms, creeds, commentaries, councils, or any other thing, any other writing of men. We care about the Word of the living God. That is true from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, that what it says is what it means. It came from the mouth and the mind, the spirit of Almighty God, who spoke through his holy servants and told them what to write, and then God preserves his word unto all generations. We believe that 100% here. Everything that it teaches, we believe. So I hope you can agree with that. And on the other side, if you don't, if you disagree, but you're interested to hear what we have to say, Feel free to, to join in. Just please keep in mind, uh, just please be respectful to our beliefs, respectful to our position here. If you are disrespectful, you will be booted out. It's no different than how you would conduct a church service. That if someone started being disrespectful, rude, blasphemous, or godless, or whatever else, they would be escorted out. So it's the same thing here. And if you don't like that, well, tough. All <laughs> right. So with that, here we are. I got a few things uh, on the go here that we're going to be looking into. Um, I hope uh, you can think of something to discuss as well. Meanwhile, um, again, what's on your heart? What's on your mind? Hey, got any topics uh, to discuss? Got any debate topics? Got any questions, comments, insights, praise, praise requests, whatever? Go ahead. Ask away. Be glad to hear from you. Alrighty, good morning, good morning, folks. How's it going? Uh, uh, Bible Club's here. Robert and Luke, good morning from Canada. Hey, fellow Canuck. How's it going? Uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll be having others joining us fairly soon. So, oh, there's Dana. Good morning. How's it going? Grab your tea, grab your coffee, grab your snacks, and come join us at the table. Grab your Bibles, notepads, and pens. It's time to study the Word of God. Okay. Um, Robert does have a question here. What would be the biblical stance on writings like Paradise Regained 
that create a fictional story about Jesus? Well, um, the only thing that comes to mind on that regard is... Uh, well, what I've never heard of it, so I, I'm I'm kind of out of the loop on that. But how I would address this is well, first off, I would want to know how does it portray him? How does it portray Christ? If the content of the fictional story, because the, a, a, a story is a story, and Jesus told parables. Jesus made up stories, i.e., parables to help get across a doctrinal understanding, to help people to see and, and understand, grasp what he's trying to teach them. He would make up a story to help them see this. Some people are visual learners, so you would create a parable. So it, it would all kind of depend on how it portrays him and the content of the story itself. If the content and the portrayal contradicts the teachings of the Word of God, then you got a bit of a problem. Personally, personally, my opinion, if if I came across something like that and it didn't in and of itself contradict the word of God, I'd have no problem with it. I'd have no problem with it. Um, this is someone uh, writing a story about how, how the Lord Jesus is able to help save, uh, give him the victory or regain uh, you know, hope or faith or whatever. I'm, I'm all for that. That's not a problem. Um, that again, but it would all depend on the content, how how they portray Christ, all that kind of thing. But personally, I would, uh, in and of itself, the idea of writing stories like that, I have no problem with it. Um, I would just be more interested to know if it's biblically in line, if it's the way it portrays and what it has is in line with the Word of God. Alrighty. So... So what we're going to do here is I, I don't really have things on the list of ideas that I've come up to discuss today. So you're going to have to help me out, try to come up with some topics, some discussions, some questions and whatnot. But uh, what I do have is <laughs> our regular cesspool that we dive into on Reddit. Uh, that's also known as Ask a Christian. Ask a Christian. They got some real interesting questions here. Some of them are actually pretty good. Some of them are they make you feel like you lost a few IQ points, but oh well. But uh, we're going to dive into this and take a look at some of the things here as well. All right. So as the title of today's Q&A is... Uh, the words are spirit, they are life. Words are spirit, they are life. That's John chapter 6, verse 63, where Jesus is ta talking about his words, talking about his power, talking about his salvation, and how the flesh profits nothing. But the words, the words that I say unto you, they are spirit, they are life. So when we take a look at John chapter 6, verse 63, so grab your Bibles, notepads and pens. And turn with me to John chapter 6. I'm still getting used to this Bible. Just, okay. Okay. Just to give you an idea. All right. This is the Bible that I've been using for quite a while. This little one. Uh, it, it's a great Bible. Uh, the, the size of the, of the words are, are pretty decent. 
It's really good, but it doesn't have any margins. So to try to write notes in this thing is almost impossible. And I just so many thoughts, so many notes, so many ideas that I have that I want to jot down with it. And uh, I love this one, but I needed something with room to write in. So I saw it for a really cheap deal on Amazon. I was able to pick up this one. So it's, it's just a little bit bigger. It's just a little bit bigger and I'm still getting used to knowing where stuff is and this because it, it's so big it's it's like going from a smart car to a giant massive monster truck you know you got the sword of the word of God this thing's a battle axe so <laughs> but uh, there's there's something in the in the comments uh what size of Bible do you generally use? Is it a little Bible, one of those medium standard Bibles, or do you use the big ones? Uh, how big is your Bible? Well, turn to John chapter 6, verse 63. Okay. In John chapter 6, now, Jesus is talking about uh, his blood, his body, and uh, talking about salvation. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And a lot of people are really confused about this. And, and he's trying to help them to understand and, and how he says in John chapter 6, verse 63, It is the spirit that quickeneth. Now, this is paired directly with Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it is the spirit that quickens. That to quicken means to make alive, to bring life, to make it, to enliven again, to, uh, to uh, bring to life. That's the spirit of God has this power. He's the one that regenerates and cleanses and redeems all this and seals. It is the spirit that quickens. So it's the spirit of God that does the work. John chapter 1, verse 13, not by our blood, our will, our power, but of God. It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. Now, that's an interesting phrase right there. The flesh profits nothing. So as we see Ephesians 2, 8, 9, uh, Titus 3, 5, Galatians 2, 16, the book of Hebrews, the book of Galatians, the book of Ephesians, <laughs> on, on, how it's not by our works, it's not by our deeds, it's not by our flesh, it's not by our will, it's not by our power, it's not by our blood or anything we could possibly do. The flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit that quickens. The words, the words. Now look at this. The words. Now this is a, a book, a very big book. This is a book that, that's full of words. That this is how a lot of people see it. When they pick this thing up, they just see it as every other book, like on the bookshelf. A book of philosophy, um, a book of morals, a book of great teachings may be inspired by God, but they don't see it as the words of the living God. Like They don't see it as a voice. It's words on a page. It's not a voice. But as Jesus says here, the words that I say unto you, they are spirit. Right now, now, 
you could pick up your Bible, hold it in your hand like this, and just look at it. Now, the ink on the page is not so much as what this is referring to, as is the teaching, the doctrine, the understanding that is given by it. The words that I speak unto you, as this book speaks to me, it teaches me, it tells me, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. Because when you're met with a devil, for example, that's oppressing you, tormenting you, or whatever else haunting you, and you cite the word of God, why do the devils care so much about the word of God? Why does that bother them? Because you could quote the Hindu text, the Buddhist text, Muslim texts, or any other religious texts, and they don't care. They couldn't care less. But the moment you pick up the word of God and you cite the word of God, the devils lose their mind, they get angry, everything else, and they run away. Why do devils care so much about the words on this page? That's because there's a power behind it. There's a power behind the Jeho Jehovah's Witness texts as well. There's a power behind the, the Mormon texts. There's a power behind the Buddhist and Hindu texts, but it's not of God. It's not God. There's a power behind the Muslim texts, the, the, the Orthodox and Catholic texts, but it's not the God of the scriptures. You see, devils don't fear devils. They fear Jesus Christ. They fear Jesus Christ. So we got to understand that this book is more than just ideas. It's more than righteous morals. It's more than ideologies and things that can help me and, and heavenly philosophy. So we got to stop looking at it like that. We got to understand it as Jesus says, it's a book of life. It's a book of life and truth and power and spirit. This is the, this, this book contains understanding teachings written on pages that this stuff that's in here, the power of this book is the power of Almighty God. This is a supernatural material that is that has been made physical for us. And not just that, but God then preserves this. He preserves this unto all generations. That, that if, hypothetically speaking, the world was to go on a billion years from now, in a billion years, there will be someone sitting down with a book in their hand, they still have books, with a book in their hand that says the exact same thing that we have today. Language changes. Language changes. English evolves and other languages evolve. Some languages die out and disappear. But the thing about it is that God will be able 
to preserve these words that they will still have from the books from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books of the Bible, codified, still written down, whether digitally or on paper, it will still be available, it will still be read, it will still be preached, it will still be held, it will still be believed a billion years from now. Do you understand the power of this book? Do you understand the power of this book? It's not just leather and paper and ink on a page it's not just philosophies it's not just you know religious ideologies this this is not just a book of historicity and you know and uh compilements of epics past this is teachings and power of the living god god almighty who is real who made all things spoke unto his holy servants and told them what to write and then he preserved it unto all generations do you understand that do you believe that do you believe that do you really what is the bible to you what is the word of god to you what does this mean to you there you go so to to kind of go back to robert's question talking about this as long as we understand what this is to talk about it to write about it to create demonstrations that can help people to understand the depth of this is a beautiful thing that's great and wonderful fantastic writing creating you know if you could call them parables stories about the bible you know even other people's imaginations of creating scenarios or whatever regarding this is all fine good as long as this as it comes back to this to elevate this the word of the living god the truth of god to talk about to fantasize about to love and honor and dedicate to the truth of god is a wonderful thing wonderful thing as long as we're representing this properly that's all there you go long-winded answer but i hope that helps okay good morning good morning how's it going dennis says i have both rotate between them all yeah (laughs) Yeah, i know i know i know exactly what you mean they're talking about bible sizes um yeah i i it's hard for me to decide i i love this little one but also i'm really starting to love the big one it's just yeah so it's kind of a hard decision you kind of go back and forth from time to time and then i also have my i don't have it in here with me but i have my little pocket bible um that i keep in in one of my carry bags so i always have the bible with me and then i have uh do i have it in here i should it should be in here on my bookshelf uh, probably isn't. Nope, not in here. I have. Um, you've seen it. My all-weather Bible, plasticized pages, uh, so that it can't get wrecked. Water, oil, dirt, whatever, just wipes right off. It, it and and it floats. So, <laughs> it's it's my evangelism missionary Bible, so that uh, I don't have to worry about it getting wrecked. So if I have to go out in bad weather or whatever else or iffy situations, I have that one with me, and it can't get wrecked. So okay let's go down through 
So uh, before we get into more of the questions, more of this stuff, as we're talking about uh, the the truth of the Word of God, the truth of the Word of God, and do we actually believe it? It brings us uh, to the topic of apathy. The topic of apathy. And I wrote something this morning I would like to share with you if uh, you don't mind. <clears throat> As uh, many of you have seen, I've been posting it across uh, uh, Christian Coffee Time uh, different accounts. Uh, some of uh, uh, poetry and stories and whatnot. Uh, just to help people to be encouraged about the faith and uh, to give some insight in regarding different points and topics and doctrines of the Word of God. And I wrote another one this morning I want to share with you, kind of along the lines of this. And the topic is apathy. And what I wrote here, I call the Ballad of the Dull King. So if I can share this with you. The Ballad of the Dull King. <clears throat> Apathy, the lukewarm king, master of all disgrace. For when it rules the hearts of men, all passion and love it will replace. Apathy, the mind killer, warrior king, the uninspired, slayer of the faith of thousands, the cause of churches mired. Apathy's destruction's not forced, for it's chosen to sit enthroned. Mankind crafts its dull palace when God's word is overthrown. Passion dies, Christ is lost, the pages gather dust. For earthly joys and busyness have sealed the heart in rust. Apathy, the faith killer, destroyer of revivals, Fogs the eyes from solid land, will seek your faith to defile. For with bland eyes he'll behold you, with pathetic grip he steers. A heart cold and shriveled focus, passionless he draws near. Crowned in lackluster, never to force a fight. He conquers in bland attrition, the king of distraction's spite. Apathy, the king of dumb anguish, of God is despised. The spirit of listless fervor, hated yet made mine. I chose this king over me, I opened the gates and welcomed in. When Christ no longer rejoiced me, instead of Christ I gave over to sin. This ruler of uninspired, elected by dull saints, no threat to hell they possess, for he weakened all the ranks. Instead of prayer and fasting, instead of seeking heaven's palace, all you must do is nothing, and apathy will reign in your place. There's something I wanted to share. All you must do is nothing. All you got to do is nothing. It's just, you, you see it as blandness. There's no power. There's no fervor, there's no passion, there's no zealousness. It's just religiosity, churchianity. It's just the suits, it's the dresses, it's the makeup, it's the carry your Bible, go to the church, sing the hymns. It's just the rituals, it's just the formalities, it's just the tapestry, it's just religion. There's no power behind it. 
Is that what Christianity is to you? Then you have elected the king of apathy to reign over you, to rule you, to call the shots, to control you, that that this that the ruler of apathy teaches you how to pray and guides you through all the motions, that if your faith is apathetic, then you know nothing about the power of God. You don't understand the power that that is in this book that's between the pages. You don't understand the depth of the knowledge of God that, that is held in your hand here. That as, as God is infinite, he is infinite. Everything he does and says is infinite. There's power and understanding in everything he does and says. And when God gave us his word, his word is infinite. You can't exhaust this book. You could spend 10,000 years on one verse. And you would, ne- you would never even come close to emptying it. You'd never come close to the bottom. This is how how powerful the, this is. This is how powerful the born-again Christian faith is. It's more than just what you see. It, the, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I say unto you, they are spirit, they are life. Do you understand this? So, I give this some thought. All right, so with that, let's back up here. We've got a bunch of questions here. Okay, um, Rosalie has a question. Do you know what the rough nights are? No, and can you comment on No, I'm sorry, I have no idea what that is. More and more people are doing this. Around Christmas, they say the doors to the spiritual world are open, similar like on Halloween. Um, no. No, that's... No. I've never really heard of that. Um, Halloween's different because it actually is uh, a satanic night, a satanic ritual. It's a, a, It does have connections right back to the Druidic festivals and... No, there's nothing like that on this. People make stuff up uh, regarding the whole Christmas thing, and it's similar. How? No, no, it's not. Uh, there's zero connection. People say, "Well, Saturnalia actually it occurs on a completely different time uh, time frame." Um, all these other things that they try to accuse Christmas of do not line up. There is no, um, there's no facts to back that up. So people will say all kinds of things to condemn it, but that's not what we're having to. Do uh, we are celebrating Jesus Christ? We're not worshiping Tammuz. We're not worshiping trees. We're not worshiping Saturn. We're not worshiping the sun. We're not worshiping anything else. We are celebrating Jesus Christ. We are making it Jesus Christ centric. It's all about Jesus Christ. We're celebrating that He did come. We have taken over, conquered, and and done away with pagan stuff to to now make a, a day of Jesus Christ. And how is that wrong? Um, so no, we have nothing to do with any of the pagan nonsense that may or may not have occurred. Uh, we're making it all about Jesus Christ. And even if pagans say, well, on that day, you know, the, the veil is thinner. So what? We're worshiping Jesus Christ. I don't care what your pagan gods, your pagan devils say or do. I don't care what they do. I don't care what they say. I'm worshiping Jesus Christ. That's all I care about. Um, but no, I have not heard about the rough nights, anything like that. Um, I, I don't know anything about that. Um, it's some Germanic ritual. She says, uh, they had divination on these 12 nights. They do it all year round. 
all year round. They have have thousands of special days and nights throughout the year. They do all this stuff. Um, there's a, you, you can't find a day throughout the year, a single day throughout the year, where there hasn't been some kind of special pagan rituals done. It's not possible. Um, all the days of the week are named after pagan gods. So you can't escape it, but all you can do is completely ignore it and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't care if they do divination and burn sage. They can burn all the sage they want. I couldn't care less. <laughs> I couldn't care less. They can do all the divination and rituals they want. I couldn't care less. I'm going to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, preach his word, serve him, and, and preach the gospel. And I'm going to be leading these witches to the gospel of Jesus Christ to be born again saved. That's what I seek to do. I couldn't care less what they do. Let them cry louder, cry louder. I, I couldn't care less what they say or do. Okay. Okay, let's go down through the comments. Okay. <clears throat> Rosalie has a question. Um, how come that Jesus says in the Bible that he doesn't know when the end of the world will come, but only the Father does? Was it because of his bodily incarnation? Does Jesus know, know now? Okay. Yeah, this is a question that um, a lot of uh, atheists, Muslims, and other people, skeptics, the other people who deny the deity of Jesus Christ, like there are actual uh, professed, so-called professed Christians, people who identify as Christian, who go to church and everything else, and actually outright deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Um, and they try to use some of these kinds of arguments and whatnot. And especially the one where, well, if Jesus was God, then why did he say he didn't know that what, when uh, his father, uh, the, didn't know about the end and all that kind of thing. that's not what he said if you if you actually go back and cross-reference the scriptures and you don't just take one verse or part of a verse but you take all the gospels all the scriptures together all these things and pair them together now who is jesus according to the word of god well he's the son of god he is what else? Well, he's the Redeemer. Okay. Savior. Lord. He's the Messiah. Right? He's the Christ. Okay. Well, hold up on that one. He's the Christ. Okay. Now, what does Christ mean? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. Christ is a title. It's a, dis it's a descriptor. It's an identifier that he is the Christ. And people understood, especially back then, as uh, like the woman at the well, we know when the Messiah comes, which is called Christ, he will teach us all things. They knew and understood what Christ and Messiah actually meant. Messiah, the, the Redeemer, and, and uh, the one where God will come down. Christ is the anointed one, the promised one, the prophesied one. Christ is the prophesied one. Okay, now go back into the prophecies and take a look at what it has to say here. Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin shall conceive, shall bring forth the son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. God with us. Okay. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. He'll be given authority and power rule upon his shoulders, uh, 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 government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful. 
counselor. What else? The mighty God. The what? Everlasting Father. Now, the deniers uh, of his deity take that last one where his name that the childborn son given is called the everlasting father now you know father is capital f and uh, this is significant whenever you're doing a study regarding the the names of christ and claims and things that jesus says you'll note that uh, that uh, how it's penned on your on the pages that uh, you'll see a lowercase g in some contexts and an uppercase cap capitalized g for god lowercase g capital g to denote an understanding of the difference between the lesser so-called gods and then the almighty sovereign lord god the god above all gods like king lowercase k uppercase k where the king of kings and other kings the same as the word lord you see lord all all lowercase lowercase l-o-r-d that's like a uh ruler of the house uh master business owner kind of thing and you'll see uh uppercase l lowercase o-r-d this is like a rabbi ruler governor uh, king and then you'll see where lord where it's all uppercase l-o-r-d all uppercase that means lord god the lord above all lords that that's actually also uh paired with and meaning the literal same thing as jehovah god so when you see all uppercase l-o-r-d that literally means jehovah god so psalm 23 for example it says the lord is my shepherd you'll take you'll, uh, you should take note that it's all uppercase so it's literally saying in Psalm 23 is Jehovah God is my shepherd. And then Jesus says in, um, is it Matthew 10 or no, it's John 10. I think it's John 10 where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He's literally claiming to be Psalm 23, Jehovah God. Then we take a look at Colossians 2, 9. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All right, so now we're really breaking it down and coming to an understanding here that when we use scripture, not catechisms, creeds, commentaries, and councils, we use the word of God, use the scriptures alone. We use the scriptures alone. We don't use orthodox language in their fancy terminologies. We just purely only use the Bible. It really helps us to understand who Jesus really is. You take Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, where it says how talks about how the Lord God fashioned a body for himself. Okay? Where, where the Lord God fashioned a body for himself, that Colossians 2, 9, he indwelt. As we see with Isaiah 9, 6, the child-born son given, and the government, the power, the rule, all authority is given. Given. Okay. So, we must understand, as Jesus as he's talking to Philip, and Philip uh, says, Master, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And Jesus says, Philip, how long have I been with you, and you do not yet know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Okay, now hold up just a moment. Uh, is Jesus 
Jesus himself, is he the Father? No. He's the Son of God. He's the body formed. But he's the body of God. He's the body of God, where the fullness of the Godhead is in him. Now, Jesus is God, created by God. But as we see, for example, in the Old Testament, we see where the Lord God, where he led Israel. Now, the, now the Lord says, says in his word, he shows in his word that no man hath seen God at any time and lived. No man has seen God any time and lived, and God is spirit, and those that worship him is worship him in spirit and in truth. Right? God is spirit. And we can't behold God in his spiritual form. Right? So God fashions a veil covering so that we can behold him, like the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the Shekinah glory cloud upon the tabernacle and the temple, and the burning bush. Were veil coverings that God indwelt. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That in Jesus was indwelling the fullness of God. That that, that uh, the, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Word, the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Godhead is in him. Inhabiting this one that was fashioned by God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Day, God fashioned a body for himself that he indwelt it's this fashioned body that is saying that says no man knows the day nor the hour but the father that is in him because he had a job to do he had a job to do uh, that was that was um uh, instructed by god he's supposed to go to the cross to pay uh, pay the penalty for our sins god purchased the church with his own blood but wait a minute hold up god is spirit spirits can't bleed spirits can't die God fashioned a body that could. God fashioned a body for himself that could bleed and die. So we see here that almighty sovereign Lord God fashioned a body for himself by the power of God without sin that is the body of God. God's own fashioned body. God's own fashioned body that he made for himself that's seated at his right hand. That's God's physical body that he made for himself. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is God's own fashioned physical body. You see that? That's what scripture says. And that's what that means. That when you look at Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. No man comes unto the Father but by me. That you must go through this means the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, that of uh, this sacrifice for sins, the Lamb of God, the way of salvation that God fashioned for Himself, by Himself, through Himself, by His blood, by His body that He fashioned through the body of Jesus. That's who Jesus is. So when we come to this passage where Jesus says, "No man knows the day nor the hour but the Father," this is this is the fashioned body of god that god made god's physical body that is referring to this that this is in the mind of the father the spirit that indwells me has that this aspect has uh, has not been revealed to me yet is what jesus is saying only the spirit of the father has this the body of jesus uh, is saying that only the father understands this this but this is who jesus is this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the fashioned body of God Almighty. 
God's own body. God manifested in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. That's what that is. The word which has become flesh. And so hope, hope that makes sense. Hope you understand that. If you have any questions, please, by all means, go ahead, ask away. If you want to know more regarding this aspect of how to explain the Godhead and explain uh, the aspects of the God and all this, I have a video that I've put together. I go into great detail, a lot more scripture on this where I only use the Bible. Now, I've gotten so much hate, so much flack for making that video because I absolutely refuse to use orthodox language. I refuse to use catechisms, creeds, commentaries, or councils. I only use Bible verses. I only use Bible verses in the video and explaining the God and all this stuff. And it goes against the grain of a lot of people. But then my video was peer reviewed by Dr. Igal German of Moody Bible Institute, the leader of, of biblical languages in theology of Moody Bible Institute. And he went over my video. He peer reviewed my video and he saw that uh, what, I, what I was showing, he said it is, uh, it is biblical, it's biblically sound. And, uh, and just FYI, no, I am not a modalist. I am not a Sabellianist. I absolutely denounce and oppose modalism and Sabellianism. They're completely false. But uh, please check out my video. According to the Bible, what is the biblical Godhead? It is located in our playlist, According to the Bible. So please make sure you check that out. So hope that gives, uh, gives an answer to that one. All right. Okay. So if you have any comments, questions, issues, insights on that one, please feel free to ask away. I'd be glad to hear from you. Okay. Okay, going down through the comments here, Rosalie says, does the devil think he can win in the end? Does the devil think he can win in the end? Well, it would appear to be yes and no. It's kind of a confusion. Because they act and speak as they teach that they will. Um, like, for example, within the realm of Satanism, there are a couple different branches, a couple different denominations, uh, different ideas, ideologies. Uh, there are the the full-on Luciferians, uh, the Satanists, where they actually worship Lucifer. They worship Satan as their god. And they are taught and they hold as their theology that, that uh, in the end, in the great battle of Armageddon, they'll win. They believe that they'll win. That, that somehow they will manage to, to dethrone God by either dethroning him or killing him in some way, shape, or form. They're, they will defeat God and they will rule the rest of the time. They'll rule this, that Lucifer will finally take the throne and that they'll win and all of that. And they, uh, so there's that. But then you have moments, for example, with uh, Jesus and the Gadarene demoniac. Jesus and the Gadarene demoniac. Where when uh, Legion comes running out of the tombs and falls on his face before Christ and and the the Legion of devils cry out 
What have we to do with thee, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Have you come to torment us before the time? So this gives an understanding here that they, that they, or maybe even just some think, where the rest have deceived themselves, deluded themselves, but these ones are crying out, if you come to torment us before the time, the time that they are referring to is the day of judgment. The day of judgment, where they'll be judged and cast in the lake of fire. So there is at least some, it would seem then, that, that do understand they're on borrowed time. So to answer your question, it would be kind of a mix, it seems, of yes and no. It's confusion. Well, what else is new? He is the father of lies. Lucifer is the father of lies. And uh, as God is not the author of confusion, but the devil is. So he, he clearly is twisted up in his theology. All right. Okay. Um, Rosalie has a question, a follow-up on that. Do all demons know the Bible? Satan quoted it to Jesus, but what about the other ones? Yes. Um, they do know what it is. They know what is said. They were there. They were there. They've been around since the beginning of time. And uh, they've been through all of the events all down through history. They've they've seen everything that's gone on in the world since the beginning. Um, and uh, they are well versed in what God has to say in his doctrine and his righteousness. And when the word of God is quoted, they they know how to identify it. They know the power of it. That there's a power with it that when it's spoken they know they know this so there is an aspect of knowledge there's an aspect of knowledge there um and it would appear as you see satan being able to quote it that they even many do know what it says and are able to quote it able to cite it but they don't accept it they don't accept it they don't believe it they know it's truth but they hate it they oppose it they know how to use it to twist it, to manipulate it, to deceive with it. They know how to abuse it. So there is an aspect, it would seem, of knowledge regarding this, as we do see in the Bible, different uh, uh, presentations of this. Uh, the devils do understand, and some do know. Some even ha uh, have in a knowledge of it to be able to quote it, but they do so to corrupt it. So there you go. Okay. Um, all right. Bible Club has a question. <laughs> How about those quotation marks? Demon slayers like Isaiah Saldivar. Okay. Well, Isaiah Saldivar, I, I've talked about him before. I've done reaction videos to his stuff before. Isaiah, Sal, Isaiah Saldivar is one of the worst false prophets of the modern era. He is such a lying, deceiving, godless, 
demonic false prophet. It's not funny. Um, he corrupts the gospel. He teaches a false gospel. He teaches all kinds of abominations. Like you should sit down and, and have discussions, conversations with demons. He has said this, that you should sit down and talk with them and listen to them because they've been around for such a long time and they have a lot of information that would be helpful to you. He has literally said that. He is such a false prophet, it's not funny. He is so disgusting in his theology. And yet, yeah, he claims to be a demon slayer and a, a, a mighty uh, a mighty warrior in spiritual warfare and all that kind of stuff. No, no. Uh, first off, you can't kill devils, unlike what the names of demon slayers. Um, you can't kill devils. They can't die. They don't eat. They don't sleep. They don't rest. They don't stop. They, uh, you can't. You you can't bind them, <laughs> unlike what the charismatic movement teaches, and Isaiah Saldivar teaches, and other people like him. You can't bind devils. Okay. Uh, to quote uh, one uh, preacher. Uh, who says it, it for all of those of you out there who are binding devils can you do me a favor and and can you please just leave them bound can you leave them bound because why do you need to keep to keep rebinding them why do you need to keep rebinding them so you can't bind devils and that's not what the scripture is saying on that topic anyways uh that's not about church discipline uh, where two or three are going to agree anything, uh, it shall be done. Uh, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If you read the full context, it's talking about church discipline and God working in power with the church. Um, it's, not, it's not a context of spiritual warfare, but they've cherry-picked that and uh, placed that on the topic of spiritual warfare. Yeah, you can't bind devils. Um, but uh, they do obey the name of Jesus Christ. They do obey the the, the power of the word of God. Uh, they do obey the, the power of faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They went like Paul, full of the Holy Ghost. He commanded the devils to, to be silent and come out of the girl. And they did. Uh, but there's no binding of devils. There's no demon slaying and all this. And people who get super hyper-focused on dealing with devils all the time and that's their whole ministry is dealing with and, and their whole uh, whole concentration is primarily focused on dealing with devils uh you've been corrupted you've been corrupted because that's exactly what 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 the devil wants he wants you to be focused on them he wants your whole ministry to be about them your concentration to be about them your mind to be solely on them and about them and dealing with them all the time that's that's what the devil wants because you'll note as well, for all of these so-called demon slayers, you'll note that their theology is absolutely just bonkers. Their ministries are just completely corrupt. Uh, they, they are... Show me a single one of these, these so-called demon slayers that is theologically sound. You'll note that, that this is what happens. This is what happens. Okay. Um, uh, Rosalie says Islam teaches that during Ramadan <laughs> the devil himself is bound for a whole month right uh, the same religion Islam that teaches that while you sleep the, the devil urinates in your ear and sleeps in your nose and that's why you need to clear your ears out in the morning and blow your nose in the morning to get the devil out 
Yeah. I couldn't care less what Islam teaches. Okay. Okay. Rosalie says, uh, when you when you're unconscious or like having surgery, can de demons get into you? No. Nah, born again Christians cannot be possessed. Because you're not guarding your mind. I'm t talking here about unsaved people since saved people can't get possessed. Yeah. Um, well, unsaved people, because they're not indwelt with the spirit of God, they, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. The devils can control them, take over them at their will, at their whim. And the person doesn't even have to be unconscious. Uh, the fact that they're not saved, the fact that they have not the indwelling of the spirit of God, it doesn't matter if they're trying to guard their mind or not. The devil can take over them because they have not the spirit of God in them. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, Rosalie says, I heard a guy who was involved in demon worship tell others literally that if people follow him and his demons, probably, that he will forgive their sins. <laughs> uh, is this a, a demon's promise? Never heard of it. Oh, they say all kinds of things. So, well, well, look at the Hinduism. The devil's promise that if you follow them, they'll forgive your sins. Islam promises that if you follow them, that their God will forgive your sins. Uh, look at all the other false religions. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, and Seventh-day Adventism. All of they have promises that their gods and whatever can forgive sins. And those are devils and not gods. Oh yeah, devils will always promise forgiveness of sins if you follow them. And they've said that all down through time. This is nothing new. Uh, devils always say that. They always make promises that they don't keep. Uh, Derek has a question. Is there real literature that would be okay to read about the circumstances surrounding the life of Jesus before his ministry or other books that are okay to read about Jesus? Um, well, you have to be very careful with that one. And be very careful with them. There is an awful lot, an awful lot of nonsense and garbage out there. Um, but there are some materials that are more uh, in the lines of historical documentation, like the writings of Josephus. Uh, there's the writings of Tacitus. There's the... There, there are some historical, archaeological-based writings and whatnot in that regard. But things like the Talmud, which is satanic, and uh, other, other writings like that, I would stay away from. Uh, the Apocrypha, uh, the Apocryphal books are garbage. The Book of Thomas, the Book of Tobit, the Book of Mary, the Book of Judas... All of these are, are garbage. Those are not biblical. Those are those are demonic. They teach Gnostic gospels and lies and blasphemies about about the Lord. Stay away from that stuff. Um, uh, there, I have a playlist actually here on our YouTube channel, um, proving the Bible true. It's called my our playlist is called proving the Bible true, where I got tons and tons and tons and tons of videos in there of archaeological discoveries, scientific discoveries, all this. And in there, in the playlist that uh, in a number of the different videos, there are, are mentions of other writings, books, materials, and that kind of stuff that you can read about the, the biblical uh, accounts and about the person of Christ. So you can check some of those out. But the ones off the top of my mind, uh, the things that you can read, 
of people that are there that can talk about the time and the events and these kinds of things are like the writings of Tacitus and um, uh, the works of Josephus. Now, he was a scribe during that time, and he wrote down all the different kinds of stuff that was happening dur during um, the time after, uh, shortly after Jesus, before the Roman uh the, the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He was there. And so he actually well, uh, refers to the Christians and to Jesus and the events and stuff surrounding the area. So the, the, the writings of Josephus are a, a highly recommended work if you want to know more about that kind of thing. Okay. Okay. Um... Okay. Luke has a question. What is your interpretation of Hebrews 6, 4-6? Okay, uh, we literally just went over that this the other day, but I'm more than happy to go over it again. Now let's go over it again. Okay. So before we get into this, um, if I can ask you a question, Luke, um, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the mighty God manifested in the flesh? Do you believe that? Yes, he says. Okay, awesome. Praise the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that salvation is by grace through faith by belief alone? Do you believe that salvation is by grace through faith, by belief alone? Yes, indeed. Praise the Lord. Awesome. That's great. Do you believe that salvation can be lost, taken away, or recanted? Do you believe that salvation can be lost, taken away, or recanted? Because, and if, if you're not sure, if, uh, please feel free to be honest in that. Just if you're not sure, I'm more than happy to walk you through this and explaining this. And, uh, okay, they said not sure. Well, then let's look at this. Okay, so to, to build this up then, to understand how to interpret these kinds of passages, um, I teach a principle. It's called the clear interprets the unclear, okay? The clear interprets the unclear. Now, how this works is we take clear, concise passages that, that we know are absolutely salvationary, like John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, where Jesus literally says that, that belief is what saves you, that there's no condemnation to them which believe, but those who have not believed are condemned already. So we see belief saves, unbelief damns. And then we go over to um, uh, Acts chapter 
uh, Acts 10.43, Acts 10.43, where when you believe on his name, your sins are forgiven. Uh, Ephesians 1.7, we're, we're redeemed by the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.13, to trust in and believe the gospel, you're indwelt with the Spirit of God. We take this and pair this with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and this is where we really uh, uh, set up the platform, we set, we set up the, uh, the pillar here. To understand the gospel, we must understand the very meaning of the word grace. Grace means unmerited favor. That I didn't merit it. I didn't earn it. It's not a reward. I don't deserve it. But he gave it to me anyways because he so loved me. The mercy of God, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, but by his mercy he saved us, which is the same meaning as grace, by sheer undeserved graceful mercy of God, that he saw me in my sin state, and he's not willing that any should perish, so he called me, he drew me with a gift that he offered, he says, if you take this gift, I will save you, if you accept this gift, I will save you. That's Ephesians 1, 7, in whom, ye, uh, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins by the riches of his grace. Redemption through his blood to be redeemed, bought out, changed, saved, made new by the riches of his grace. Our sins are forgiven. When I trust in and believe the gospel, Ephesians 1, 7 and 13, that I am indwelt the spirit of God and my sins are forgiven by grace now so it says for by grace ephesians 2 8 9 for by grace are you saved through faith now we must understand the meanings of these and do the study on these words grace means unmerited favor undeserved uh it's not a reward it's a gift not a reward so it says for by grace are you saved through faith now that's the next word we must understand as it says in hebrews Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hope. Not seen. As Ephesians 1.13, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, you received the Holy Spirit of promise, in whom ye also trusted. Trusted. So, hope not seen so therefore we understand as it says for by grace are you saved through faith faith then in ephesians 2 8 9 means believing trust believing trust faith is not works faith is not faithfulness faith is believing trust so we can literally reinterpret ephesians 2 8 9 as to say for by unmerited favor by believing trust are you saved and now in the next line and that not of yourselves. Not of yourselves. Literally nothing of you. That's John chapter 1 verse 13. Uh, how we're born. Not of our blood. Not of our will. Not of our power. But of God. We're literally nothing of us. All of God. Right? So not of yourselves. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. That Jesus Christ is our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our redemption. He is our sanctification. He is our everything because we have no goodness, no righteousness, no ability. There's literally nothing we could possibly do. We're corrupted by sin, heirs of hell, and a child of the devil, enemy of God. We have no goodness, no righteousness. We're all fallen away. We're all become as a, a foul thing. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. 
there's nothing we could possibly do. So it's not of ourselves. So it, but, but by unmerited favor, by believing trust, are you saved in that not of yourselves? It is the gift of God, not a reward. Gift of God, not a reward. Not of works, lest any man should boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Then we pair with that Titus chapter 3, verse 5. So it says, not of works, not of yourselves and not of works, not of anything you have. But then it also goes on to even clarify even further. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done now. And that's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy, he saved us. Meaning grace. So not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Do you know what that means? What that literally is interpreted as. Works of righteousness is religiosity. Anything that you could do in religious means, charity, help, faithfulness, Bible reading, prayer, going to church, all the stuff, love of the brethren, all of, all of your religious rituals and obligations, everything else you could possibly do, that's what that means right there. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, which also includes water baptism. Water baptism is a physical act that we do out of obedience. It's a physical observance of Christ's command that, that we follow through and do. So therefore, water baptism would fall under the header of righteous works. So not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy, by grace, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Ghost, that the Spirit of God washes us, cleanses us, seals us, holds us, as John the Baptist said, now, behold the Lamb of God, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. That's Titus 3.5, the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Ghost. So, with this in mind, and understanding in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, that, that absolute salvation assurance is possible. You can have that eternal knowledge of eternal security, of your assurance of, of salvation. You can know 100% beyond shadow of a doubt that you are born again saved because you believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. So with all of this in mind, and I know I'm talking fast, please forgive me. If you have any questions, please go ahead and ask. With all of this in mind, we then have to come to the question, can salvation be lost, taken away, or be recanted? Well, Romans, let's take a look at Romans, the tablet turned off on me, Romans chapter 11, so take your Bible, go to Romans chapter 11, and there's a verse in here I want to take a look at, because grace, as it says, is unmerited favor, and we want to look at and as we see that it's not by our blood, not by our will, not by our power, it's not by our works, it's not by our righteous works. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, it, it says that, that, uh, for, uh, that uh, it's not of works of the law, not even by deeds of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, but by the faith of Christ. So it's not by works, not by righteous works, and not by works of the law. And as Romans chapter 11, verse 6 says, Romans eleven six. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. 
Grace ceases to exist is what this means. The first bit of this verse, this is literally what it's saying, that grace ceases to exist if my works are involved. Because grace is absence of self. It's all of him, none of me, right? Would you agree to this, Luke? Would you, would you, do you understand what I'm saying here? Do, do you see what I'm saying? Would you agree to this? Because this is very important. This is very important to understand what grace is. Because what, what I'm going to pose to you is an understanding that if, now please hear me very carefully, if salvation can be lost, taken away, or be recanted, that in and of itself denotes that I must do something to maintain, to keep it, or to earn it. Because salvation lost, taken away, or recanted denotes salvation by works. That my salvation is hinged upon my behavior. That salvation is hinged upon my fruit bearing. That salvation is hinged upon my deeds. That salvation is hinged upon my maintaining favor of God. That salvation is hinged upon, upon my hold on him and not his hold on me. That I have the power to affect my salvation that John 1.13 flat out says you don't. You don't have power over it. Not by your blood, your will, or your power. But rather, as we see, salvation is all of the power of God, that the Spirit of God comes upon you, giving you the understanding, which we then go to Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Please take your Bible and turn to Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Now I'm going to walk you through this. And I have a couple questions for you, Luke, if you don't mind. Now, as we see in Hebrews chapter 6, verse starting at verse 4, for it is impossible for those who are once enlightened. Okay, I have a question for you. Is enlightenment salvation? Is enlightenment salvation? have the same question okay when we do a study on this and we take a look at what enlightenment is and what it is not enlightenment is intellectualism i have that light bulb moment where there you're looking at it you're looking at it and you have that all of a sudden oh i get it that is enlightenment where you have you have that that moment of clarity oh i see it i get it it's intellectualism it's knowledge it's it's head knowledge it's of the mind that's what the enlightenment is enlightenment is not salvation enlightenment is not salvation it's just the knowledge of and knowledge doesn't save you having the knowledge of jesus doesn't save you having the knowledge of the cross the burial the resurrection doesn't save you you can know all of this and go straight to hell. Knowledge does not save you. 
But with this knowledge comes something else, as we see. Look at Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. For it is impossible. Now, pay attention very closely to the words. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. No, hold up. Hold up. Words are important. You need to study the words. And have tasted. Now, this is the, the explanation that I use. Luke, have you ever gone to like the mall or to Walmart, the grocery store, and you see that uh, that lady or that that dude standing there, and they have the apron on, they have the the the, the gloves on, and they're standing by the little kiosk uh, of a food thing, and they have the little paper cups with like a piece of cheese or sausage or something with a toothpick in it, and they hand you the little says, hey, try this, try this, and you take the little paper cup and you try that little piece of cheese or sausage or whatever it is, and to see if you like it, you you know what I'm talking about. And the reason they do this is to give you a tasting to see if this entices you, see if this, this perks your interest and you'd be like, hmm, I like that. I want to, I want to purchase the whole thing. I want to have the whole thing. You see, the spirit of God, what he, what he does, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, he convicts of sin, he convicts of righteousness, he enlightens the mind, enlightens the eyes, he gives you the taste of to, to draw you, to entice you, to, so that you would make the choice that you would want the whole thing. He gives a taste of the heavenly gift. It's not a full partaking, it's not the full meal, it's just a tasting. And we're made partakers of the Holy Ghost. That's not salvation. That's the Spirit of God is working upon you. That your heart has softened enough that the Spirit of God is able to work on you and bring you to bring you to the conviction of sin. You are convicted of sin. Your eyes are opened. You see the cross. You see it. You get it. You understand. You have the enlightenment. You have the taste of. You know what it's about. You know what it's about. We're made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God because 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man receives not the things that be of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. That uh, the, the, the natural state of sin and the, the, and the natural sinful state, they have no knowledge of the scriptures. An unsaved person can pick up this book and it's confusion to them. They don't get it. They don't see it. They don't understand it. You have to have the Spirit of God to understand the Word of God. So in this moment of enlightenment, in this moment where they have the taste of the light of and the knowledge of, they have the taste of the good Word of God, we're now, now, oh, I see what John 3.16 is saying. I get that. That's what that means. And have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the world to come if they, verse 6, if they, the unsaved individual being presented the kingdom of God, being presented all this, all this work, the taste of, the light of, the glimpse of, the, the, the conviction of sin, the knowledge of John 3.16, all the rest of it, they see it, they get it. Now, I don't want that. You ever gone to the mall, the grocery store, whatever, you see that lady there with the paper cups, and they, and they hand you the paper cup, and you take the taste of the cheese or whatever it is, and you're like, oh, yeah, eh, no thanks, and you walk away. 
what what's to entice you if they came up to you and offer you the same thing again hey uh, would you like to try this no i've already tasted that i already know what it's about and i don't want it how hard it is to renew them again it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift or made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance. It's talking about unsaved people rejecting the gospel, having full knowledge, full understanding of what it is and what it's about. They get it, they see it, they tasted it, they understand it, and they don't want it, they reject it. How hard it is to renew them again. That's what it's talking about. You see that? Do you see that? So now on the same on the same page, you have individuals say, well, well, if works aren't involved, well, what about James chapter two? James chapter two, faith that works is dead. I'm gonna just assume, I'm gonna guess that's pro probably one of your questions. How to how to address this, how to answer James chapter two. James chapter 2 uh, says, Faith that works is dead. Faith that works is dead. Well, okay. But Paul says over here, For by grace he saved through faith and not of works. He says in Titus 3 5, Not by righteous works. He says in Galatians, Not by works of the law. Well, what is James saying? Faith that works is dead. Faith that works is dead. Well, Either Paul's a liar or James is a liar. Well, no, both are apostles of Jesus Christ. They're both speaking by the Spirit of God. None of the, neither of them are a liar. Okay, well, well then uh, Paul's talking about a way of salvation for Gentiles and James talking about a way of salvation for the Jews. No, no, it's one way, one truth, one life. And it says in Acts chapter 15 how the Gentiles are saved the same as we and that there's no difference. In Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor a Gentile, neither bond nor free nor male nor female, all are one in Christ. There's only one way. Okay. Well, either one of them's talking about salvation, the other is not. Paul's talking about salvation clearly. Obviously. I mean you look at the context. James, if you back up in James to take a look at the full context of James, James is written to Christians and who are already saved, and he's talking about charity and Christian behavior for the purpose of promotion of the faith, not maintenance of salvation. So the reason I bring that up is to just uh, also touch on and address the topic here that there is not one single passage. There's not one single passage in all the word of God that teaches even remotely that salvation can be lost, taken away, or be recanted. Because if it's by grace, then it's not by works. And if salvation can be lost, taken away, or be recanted, then salvation can be by works. Either grace is grace or grace ceases to exist. Because if works are involved, grace has ceased to exist. Romans 11.6. So, uh, if you have any other comments, questions in regards to that, please feel free to ask away. I'd be glad to hear from you. But as we see, salvation is by grace through faith, by belief alone, not of works, not by righteous works, not by works of the law. Uh, once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. Because salvation is by grace and not by works. If it can be lost, taken away, be recanted, then salvation is by works. Um, my only remaining question about it is, once I believe, what if I decide to stop believing and go back voluntarily obeying the devil? Okay, let's take a look at... Uh, 
1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God called Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. So, as you see, those that are indwelt by the Spirit of the living God can't curse Christ. You won't want to, you won't be able to, the Spirit of God won't let you, and you'll have such severe conviction regarding that. That you may get upset at religion, but within you will remain something in response to the, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ that you won't be able to curse him or speak against him. And also with this as well as we see in um, John 16, 8, where the spirit of God is that will convict the world of righteousness and of sin, uh, of sin, or reprove the world of righteousness and of sin and of judgment where he is the convictor of all this. So with that said, could you show me a single individual who was a true blue born again Christian and dwelt by the spirit of living God who believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ for their salvation? Show me a single one of them that, that have done that, that have fully, full on rejected the faith, cursed Christ and gone into the arms of the devil. Can you show me one? You see, that question is generally a question that is posed by individuals who deny eternal security, who deny once saved, always saved, who believe that once saved, always saved is a false gospel, a false doctrine, who believe that you have to do works to earn your final salvation, all the rest of that, who don't believe in the gospel according to scripture. That that's a straw man argument that they love to use. What what if I just give it up? But what okay, question. Here's a question for you, Luke. Could you answer me on this one? Are you familiar with the story of the prodigal son? Are you familiar with the story of the prodigal son? Whereas a man who had two sons, one who remained faithful and worked at the home, the other, now note the words, note the words. It says he took his inheritance what is our inheritance? He took his inheritance and he went off into the world and squandered his inheritance in riotous living and harlots and drunkenness and revelry and all the rest of that. Even to the point where he wasted it all and ended up in the pen with the pigs. Left his father, went into the world, into such filth and abject despair, broken completely lost in the pen of the pigs. Okay, my question to you, Luke, if you could think about this one very carefully. When did the prodigal son cease to be a son of his father? When did the prodigal son cease to be a son of his father? Um, there's a verse 
Um, I'd like you to take a look at. Do you have your Bible handy uh, there, Luke? Do you have your Bible handy? Could you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2? 2 Timothy chapter 2? I have a verse I would like you to look at. Could you please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2? Now, we see in the context here about the faithfulness of Christ. The power of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ, and about us enduring and discipleship and faithfulness and all the rest of this. And going on about the hardships of life, the hardships of the world. And then, he, then Apostle Paul says something to Timothy that's just astounding. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. Please read it. Now, if we back up in verse 11, it is a faithful saying, where if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, this is in context to discipleship. If you back up, look at the whole context. This context is discipleship. But then he goes on to clarify something else. Because in this world, in, in discipleship, we have a lot of people that fall like the prodigal son. They fall like the prodigal son. They get in despair and depression and get angry and wind up even denying the faith. Which does happen. But... Verse 13, if we believe not, if we even cease to believe. What does it say in verse 13? What does it say? If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. The father of the prodigal remained faithful. He was out on the road longing for his son to return. Sure, he was not not pleased with what his son did. Sure, what he, he may even been upset at what his son did, but he was still his son. He's still of his of his blood, of his bones. It, it was his family. It was, it was his offspring. It's his child. It's his son. How could he deny his son, his own family, deny his blood? How could he deny his blood? And when the son finally got up and went to, went to return, you'll note that the father ran and embraced his son in all the mud and the manure. Embraced him before his son even changed his clothes. Embraced him in all the mud and the manure. Kissed his son. Cleansed his son. Forgave his son. He remains faithful even when we do not. He cannot deny his own. We're written in the Lamb's book of life. People say, well, well, we can be struck out of the book of life. Do you know there's two books? There's the book of life and the Lamb's book of life. There's the first book of those that are physically alive. You must be born again, born again. Second birth, second book. Lamb's book of life of those who are born again. You cannot be struck out of the Lamb's book of life. But like Ananias and Sapphira or the man of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, your physical life can be taken. But as it says, you'll be delivered unto the devil for the destruction of the flesh. But his spirit is still saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And exactly, it's a decision of the son to go back. Who inspired him? Who put it in his mind? Who convicted him? Who drew him? Who convicted him? Who who brought it up in his mind about the state and what he was and what was going on that he should return? He should seek repentance. He should seek uh, the, the reconciliation with the father. That's the spirit of God. 
because the prodigal son's story is a picture of the of the of the christian that wanders that backslides that may even fall away and how the spirit of god is still inside of you convicting you drawing you you will never have rest you're born again saved and you wander you backslide you become lukewarm that's that spirit of god within you Will, will, will torment you in conviction, will constantly work at your heart and your mind, will constantly remind you the scriptures, for his word does not return void. You see it? You see it? Oh, we do have free will choice. We can wander. We can be unfaithful. But he is faithful. But he is faithful even when we are not because it's it's about his hold on me not my hold on him because you also note the other passage of what jesus says how we're held in the hand of the father right we're held in the hand of the father and no man can pluck you out you do realize that means you can't pluck yourself out either okay you can't pluck yourself out either there's no sin greater than the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no sin mightier than the fingers of God wrapped around you. You can't pry the hand of God open and then jump into hell. You can't do it. Oh, you may get upset. You may get depressed. You may get anxious. You may get faithless. You may get fearful. Oh, this world might draw you away. You might fall in sin or whatever, but the Spirit of God will remain in you, will convict you and draw you and work on you and bring you back again and again and again and again, regardless of how many times that, that sheep wanders, the shepherd always go and bring it back. And sometimes the, 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 the time scale of the wandering may be greater than others. Time is irrelevant. Time is irrelevant. Time's irrelevant to God. All because I don't see fruit in you doesn't mean that, that within you it isn't the turmoil of the Spirit of God. Sometimes the conviction, sometimes the fruits of the Spirit are not visible to the outsider. Only the individual can see and know and feel the turmoil and the conviction and the working and the drawing of the Spirit of God within him. It's about the fruits of the Spirit, not the fruits of the hands. This is what it's talking about. We're saved by grace, not works. By the sheer unmerited favor of God. If, if I can affect my own salvation, if I can deny it, reject it, recant it, and it would actually be stripped from me, then salvation is by, by works. And grace is a lie. Grace is a lie. Then Jesus was wrong on the cross when he said, it is finished. Rather, he should have said, here, I did what I could, now you take over. I did my part, now your turn. No, he said, it's finished. He said, it's finished. And he said, it's by grace. He said, it's by belief. He said, it's by faith. He said, it's not by works. He said, it's not by righteous works. He said, it's not by works of the law. In fact, he even says that even if we believe not, he abides faithful. He abides faithful. It's not about my maintaining sanctification. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want, I want you to see it. You need to see it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 30. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Look what it says. Talking about Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us, meaning Jesus Christ is our wisdom, 
He is our righteousness. Because, well, we have no righteousness of our own, right? We have no righteousness of our own. We have no goodness of our own. We are completely incapable. So therefore, he is our righteousness. His righteousness was imputed upon us, given to us. So he is our, 1 Corinthians 1.30, he is our wisdom, because we don't know anything. He is our righteousness, because we have nothing. And sanctification. You see it? 1 Corinthians 1.30. Jesus Christ is our sanctification. And I, no doubt you most likely have heard so many preachers say how you need to maintain your sanctification. You need to keep your sanctification. You need to build up your sanctification. All that kind of thing. Right? Wrong. We can't. Because we have no goodness in us. How can we who, who have no goodness, how can we who have no righteousness maintain sanctification for God, holiness before God, if we are incapable of being holy? Romans chapter 7. For I know that in me is no good thing. The, the things I want to do, I can't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. A wretched man that I am. So with the mind, I serve the law of God. With the flesh, the law of sin. How can I maintain sanctification if there's no goodness in me? He is my sanctification. He is all my goodness. He is my wisdom. He is my righteousness. He is my sanctification. He is my redemption because he is everything. It's not by my blood, my will, my power, my goodness, my righteousness, my anything. I can't affect it. I can't do anything. I have no ability uh, to affect it in any way. All I do is believe and I'm born again, saved and dwelt by the spirit of living God, held in the hand of the Father, names written down the Lamb's book of life and there's no stupid thing I could possibly do to undo it. You're held in the hand of the Father. No man can pluck you out. That means you can't pluck yourself out either, no matter how dumb you are. <laughs> no matter how far in the pig pen you go, O prodigal, it doesn't matter. The Spirit of God, does that mean I can go do whatever I want? No. It means you won't want it. It means you won't want to. And that even when you do sin, the Spirit of God will convict you. And if, it, and if any man do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The Spirit of God will convict you and draw you and teach you and you won't want to. And even when you do sin, you'll be brought under conviction of sin and you will seek repentance, 1 John 1, 9. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That Luke says, so because of the Holy Spirit in me, I will always repent sooner or later. Yes. 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 Because as we see in Galatians chapter 3, go over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and we want to take a look at. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Galatians 3, 23. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Verse 24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Okay, now let's just look at this in just for a moment. Now, this is the leading up to being born again, saved that the law 
it is brought to us and we're shown how we're a sinner by the law and we're shown but when we face the law we see how we have no good no righteousness of our own because when we actually take a look at the law which of the laws have we not broken the point of the law is to reveal sin so that you can see that you're a sinner and that you need to be saved that you need someone else to pay the price the law brings you to the cross the law doesn't save you for if there had been a law which could have given life verily righteousness should have been by the law but it's not so the point of this is we see that the law is our first schoolmaster our first teacher our first instructor to bring us to the knowledge of sin to bring us to the cross so we could see our need of salvation and that we believe in the lord jesus christ we're no longer under the law romans 6 14 but under grace now that we're born again saved john chapter 14. john chapter 14 15 and 16 jesus says and i will give you the holy ghost the comforter he will teach you all things and cause you to be in remembrance of everything winter i have told you and he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment the spirit of god that indwells us is now our schoolmaster is now our teacher is now our instructor and he will always teach you and instruct you and convict you and reprove reprove you and rebuke you and hold you in all things you will never be able to sin and not fall under conviction because spirit of god will convict you of this and show you how that was wrong and bring you to the knowledge of this so that you'll come before the lord say lord i'm sorry and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness there you go makes sense by grace not works it's by grace not earning your final salvation by works and righteous living no it we're saved by grace we're saved here we're saved right now we are saved we are born again and uh in fact one more one more and we'll move on one more one more one more please take your bible now if you're into underlining highlighting or marking your bible could you please do so with this one verse Please do so with this one verse. Please turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Now in 1 John chapter 5, we want to go down to verse 13. First verse 13. Now, this is Apostle John. Apostle John, he wrote the Gospel of John, and he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. So if someone ever says, hey, can you name four books of the Bible? Just say John. Uh, go to first John chapter 5 verse 13 he he says the reason I'm writing to you the reason I'm writing to you is for two points two reasons I'm writing to you so that as he says these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God so he's writing to Christians right these things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that ye may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe in the name of the son of god i'm writing for two reasons so that you can believe and be saved and know that you're saved right you see that please tell me you see that you understand that because you need to understand this before i before i bring up my final point do you do you, do you understand that 
that he's talking about believing on the name of the Lord and then having assurance of faith, having that eternal security. Because the word of God and what it says right here is that eternal security, assurance of salvation can be had. That you can know that you're born again saved. I can know I'm saved. Because, question, if salvation can be lost, taken away, be recanted. If eternal security was a lie, if once saved, always saved was a lie, if, if my salvation could be lost, taken away, be recanted, if that was real, if that was true, could you honestly say you know that you're saved? If salvation could be lost, taken away, be recanted, could you honestly say you know that you're saved? That you're going to heaven when you die. That when you take your last breath, you'll be in the presence of the glory of God. You know for sure you're born again saved. If your salvation could be lost, taken away, be recanted. Well, according to this, it says that you may know. That you can know. Well, I can't say that I know if my salvation could possibly be under threat. I would never know. I would have to say, I hope so. I would have to say, I hope so. I can't say I do know. I'd have to say, I hope so. But the word of God says it's by grace through faith and that you can know. Because it's not by works, not by righteous works, not by works of the law. Um, it, it was confusing to me the word continue to. That is in the, the New King James. Uh, which, which, I'm sorry, which passage are you referring to? Uh, there's a problem. In, it's in First John 15. It says, continue to. And you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know the eternal life, and that you may believe the name of the Son of God. Um, can you type out the verse? Are you able to type out the verse? Because I'm not sure which aspect of the, which part of the verse that that's referring to. It might just simply be just a misunderstanding of the verse or something else. I just, I'm just curious. It's not in the Greek. Right. Um, the, the other point, as we see, um, is, uh, there's another passage that I want to bring up because, uh, some people, for example, who hold to that may teach about the continuing, enduring, staying in. Well, you do know Matthew 24, those that endure to the end shall be saved. That's talking about tribulation. That's not talking about salvation. That's talking about the tribulation period that it is shortened and you endure that and you will be saved from it. means delivered from the afflictions, persecutions. It's not a salvationary passage. But in uh, 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. I know I said one more, we're done. I'm a preacher. I always say one more thing, one more point. Uh, these things have I written to you who believe in the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Okay, well, I'm just saying, me reading that, the impression that I'm getting, that it's prefaced by the first bit, that you may know that you have eternal life, 
So I'm writing to you so, so, that, so, so that you can know that you have eternal life. So because of this, because you can know, you can continue to believe. He's not talking about continuing to believe to stay saved. It's just continuing in maintaining that belief of that we have believed in so because you can know you're saved you can know you're saved that's what i get out of that but uh i know there's different different changes whatever but but you see how we must preface this though by by what it says prior the clear interprets the unclear the clear interprets the unclear what it says over here because it says by grace through faith not of works so therefore we take these clear examples these clear examples and we overlay it over the unclear. And when we overlay the clear over the unclear, it helps helps us to see what it's not saying. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So, for example, we would take Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's not by works. It's not of yourselves. By grace through, it's by grace through faith. It's a gift, not, not a reward. We take a simple passage like this. It's very clear about salvation. We overlay it over an unclear passage and it helps us to see what it's not saying so that we can then see what it is saying. It's a roundabout way of knowing how to apply scripture with scripture, rightly dividing the word of truth. But in 1 Peter 3, 9, this is another one just to throw into the mix. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Now, this is one that people will try to use. Well, if we don't continue, if we sin, we lose our salvation. Okay, hold that. First, first John chapter 3, verse 9. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. Well, I guess we're all in trouble. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. People say, see, see, and when we're born of God, we're sinless, and we don't sin, and, uh, and we must continue in faith and maintain the works. Is that what it's saying? Is that what it's saying? No. Because clear interprets unclear. Clear interprets unclear. Well, if I could if I could attain sinlessness, well then why does the Bible say if any man say he is not sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him? If if, if the saints, those who are actually born of God, do not commit sin, then why does it say in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous? And first John 1 9, if we if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We got a bit of a contradiction then. Well, that's because that's not what it's saying. Because this is why it's so important to study the meanings of the words. Now, you'll note in first John chapter 3, verse 9, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. The word commit. If we actually do a study on this in the Koine Greek. And do a study on the word commit. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. The context that we see then means to live in unrepentantly. I wanted to throw this in because this is what we were talking about. Uh, the question, the point that you made that if we have the Holy Spirit in us, we'll always uh, have that conviction. Because whosoever is born of God, what it means is to be able to live in sin unrepentantly. Whoever is born of God will not be able to live in sin unrepentantly. That's literally what that means. I think that's the perfect 
um, way to end that, uh, way to end this discussion. Do you see that? Do you see that? I hope that uh, answers your question there, Luke. Hope that gives you assurance, hope that gives you peace, hope that gives you understanding. It's by grace, through faith, not of works, not by righteous works, not by works of the law, and salvation cannot be lost, taken away, or be recanted. Praise the Lord. Okay. If you have any other comments, questions, issues, insights on that one, please go ahead and ask away. All right, so let's back up here. Uh, in the comments, uh, Derek has a question. Okay, absolutely. Thank you. Awesome. Praise the Lord. Derek has a question here. Oh, we covered that one. Uh, here's the next one. Okay, Derek has a question. Is it okay for a Christian to date a person who is also a Christian who is divorced? Would they ever be able to get married under God's law? All right. I know what people say. I know what what governments say. I know what the laws of the land say. I know what modern liberal progressive uh, Bible unbelieving professed Christians say. But what does the word of God actually say regarding divorce? Well, you must understand that according to the Bible, according to God's word, okay, according to the word of God, divorce does not mean unmarried. That's a modern societal interpretation. That divorce means the the vows are null and void and you're now single again and that the marriage vows are ended and and that you're free and single again. Uh, No. According to the word of God, divorce literally means and is meant for a temporary separation for the purpose of fixing the issue so you can come back together again. Divorce does not mean unmarried. Let alone that Jesus says, Jesus said, that uh, that if you were, it, that whoever marries her or she who that marries him that that is divorced commits adultery. Jesus said, that whoever uh, marries the one who's divorced commits adultery. Adultery, because your vows before God in marriage are binding until death, and that you are by, uh, before God still married. So therefore, to answer your question biblically, you're dating a married person. Is that wrong? Yes. Can you can you marry them? No. Polygamy is not biblical. All right. Okay. Uh, okay, we got another question here. Uh, by Rosalie, can we trust the? Wait a minute, can we trust the Gospels? Peter Williams is a, a good book. It shows how the biblical accounts are the most accurate ones. The they get even little details right, like the names of the plants and so on. All right, I haven't heard of that book. Um, 
but uh, if you're interested, look that up. Okay. And let's see if there's any other comments here I've missed. All right, so that wraps up the comments section. Um, okay, Derek has uh, a, a follow up here regarding the divorce or marriage dating thing. If the people don't get married, can they still date or not at all? Well, you understand you're you're dating a, another married person that they are married to someone else. So you're you're going out on a date with an already married person. You see that? Is that right or wrong? Biblically, before God, taking someone out on a date who is already married to someone else, even though they may be separated, but before God they're still married, divorce does not mean unmarried, is it right or wrong to take someone out on a date who is already married to someone else? You see, what I do is I try to rephrase the question with more details or to just to be more blunt about it. And often I've found that that it just settles it right there when I do that. Just just rephrase it. I'm Okay, so technically what I'm doing is I'm taking someone out on a date who's already married to someone else. Uh, is that right or wrong? It's wrong. What's the purpose of, of dating? You're trying to do that with an already married person. So, there you go. Yes, now I understand. Thank you. Awesome. Okay. All right. So, with that, we are now going to segue into Reddit in our Ask a Christian. Uh, here's a question. What is something you think atheists know to be true, but they won't admit it? What is something you think atheists know to be true, even if they don't admit it? Okay, in my opinion, from what I've, what I've seen and how I've debated people and all this, that atheists know, beyond shadow of a doubt, Without question, atheists know that ver- that literal, that literal nihilistic nothingness of no matter, no energy, literally nothing. Atheists know that nothing can't make something. That they know that matter didn't come from nothing. But the problem is, is they do not want to admit that. They don't want to say that because to question that would then bring in, bring in the possibility of a creator. And that is just unthinkable. That's my thoughts. What are your thoughts on that one? What do you think? All right. Well, let's move on to one more. That's why they want so much to disprove God. Yep, exactly. 
All right, so here's a question. What are the chances that people like Kenneth Copeland and Joel Osteen are atheists? What are the chances that people like Kenneth Copeland and Joel Osteen are atheists? I uh, I don't believe that. Um, I know the level of delusion that can occur, the deception of the enemy that, that can come upon the mind. And that people like Kenneth Copeland and Joel Osteen, Joyce Myers, Paul White, Todd, Todd White, uh, all the rest of the, these kind of guys, they they are 100% convinced and believing what they say. Like Kenneth Copeland actually does believe. He actually believes he's a god. He flat out says it. He teaches it. He believes it. He can, he's convinced he's a God. He also is convinced that the powers of heaven are moved by money. He believes it. He believes it. Joel Osteen believes what he says. They actually are convinced. That's, that's the cult mind cult mind they, uh, they to the outsider it's absolutely absurd it's ridiculous it's nonsense it's foolish but that's the defining factor of a cult people in a cult don't believe they're in a cult they have to see it for themselves no matter how ridiculous how absurd like the people in the in the mad cult of scientology they believe it even though we know it's a bunch of nonsense, they believe it. That's 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 the cult mind. But there's 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 no ability to think to think, you know, strategically and and in detail and logic and reason. There's none of that. They are completely convinced. They're completely convinced by the cult stuff. And so Kenneth Copeland, Joel Osteen, no, they're not atheists. They actually believe in what they say. They actually believe in their God, a God of their imagination, a God of their fashioning, a God of their reality, of their cult reality. They believe it. Okay. Here's a question. <laughs> All right. I need your folks' help with this one. I need you to, to chime in. What are your thoughts here? <clears throat> Here's a question. Is it wrong to be goth as a Christian? Is it wrong to be a goth Christian? What's your thoughts? Is it wrong to be a goth Christian? Well, all right. How do I address this one? We have to bring everything into the word of God. And just to outright say, oh, no, it's not. Absolutely not. Okay, we got to be careful about broad brush statements. And we need to take things in detail with the word of God. Understanding that clothes and jewelry and all of this are irrelevant. To a point, to a point, if the if it's immoral, well then okay, then it's bad because it's immoral. 
that it uh, that it goes against the morals of scripture whether it be the by the sexualization and all this kind of thing that certain clothes and whatnot could could uh, could reveal and to be careful about uh, maintaining biblical morality for the purpose uh, of following after the righteousness of God because immorality is of the devil so we want to take, take a look at things in this way that uh, black red blue colors colors are colors colors are not bad colors are not sinful there are some preachers out there who actually will tell you you shouldn't wear red because red is evil <laughs> not joking uh those people are nuts shouldn't wear black because black is evil um no please show me book chapter verse please if you can show me in the word of god if you can actually show me in the word of god where it says i'm not allowed to wear or shouldn't wear xyz then i'll, I'll acknowledge that and i'll recant and I'll, and I'll believe what the scripture says you but you need to show me where it says i can't wear red or black okay so colors are irrelevant clothes depending on the on the moral argument are irrelevant jewelry well the bible doesn't condemn jewelry doesn't condemn eyeliner it doesn't condemn hairstyles other than it talks about how we need to be careful about uh, being uh, plated and all this stuff me meaning you know going above and beyond the gaudy you know, styles and fashions looking very worldly and that kind of stuff and going above and beyond you know exactly what i'm talking about but uh, but uh, so it's not so much about the 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 colors and the clothes and the jewelry and all this, but rather the question is goth. Is it wrong to be goth as a Christian? Well, okay. Well, what is can can someone tell me in the comments what is goth culture? What is goth culture? So it's not about, you know, what if I wanted to wear black? Wear black. I don't care. What if I wanted to wear black eyeliner or black lipstick? Oh, it might look weird, but it's not sinful. Okay. What? What? But it's more so about the question is goth culture. And Luke says it means passionate of darkness more 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 so yeah yeah that's what it defines it you know the the depression culture the uh anxious cast down dark depressed moody to even in some aspects of a death culture you know, darkness depression death cast down negative you know reserved but keep to yourself you know that kind of that kind of thing that's that's goth okay well if we if we then take the understanding of goth culture and we take a look at the word of god says about how we're supposed to be it talks about following after the things of christ likeness jesus wasn't a goth 
It talks about how the, the garment of praise is given for the spirit of heaviness. Goth is the spirit of heaviness. And we're supposed to defeat that. We're supposed to walk in praise, walk in joy, walk, walk in rejoicing. We're supposed to be uh, rejoicing in the Lord and the power of his might to be lifted up in gladness and peace and understanding and faithfulness and walk with the Lord and the love of the brethren and all this. And that, that goth is the antithesis, the complete opposite of Christ-likeness. Goth is the complete opposite goth culture is the complete opposite of everything that is of christ likeness so with that in mind and that there is literally not one single bit of uh, scripture that can actually validate and justify goth culture to answer the question is it wrong to be goth as a christian yes because everything that is of the goth culture is against god is the opposite of his spirit, opposite of his character, opposite of what he teaches, opposite of what he calls us to. It is the opposite of Christ-likeness. And what is the opposite of Christ-likeness? Well, the Bible says, all those who hate me love death. Goth culture loves death, depression, darkness, everything that is against God. What defines goth culture is that which is against God. There you go. All right. Uh, let's go down through here. All right. Um, some of these questions are just weird. Okay, uh, here's, here's a question. As creation... What? As creation doesn't seem to be enough, is there any evidence for God that isn't man-made or of human construct? So basically they're asking for evidence of God because they don't accept the, the creation argument. They don't accept the creation argument. Um, the other, um, the other arguments that I would use then, if you want evidence of God, this circle that I just drew on this board here. Let's let's uh, let's hypothesize that this circle represents all of the knowledge of the entire universe, everything that there could possibly be. Okay, you got that. And let's color in half. Of the circle so this side we will write the word 
God. The other side, we color in. Let's say, hypothetically, you know of all of the information in the entire universe. Half of literally everything. Is it possible that God could exist in the other half that you do not know? I want to start with that. Is it possible that God could exist in the other half that you do not know? Now, the reason why I bring up this argument is because I'm a debater. I'm an apologeticist. My job, what I do, is I debate in defense of the Word of God, to prove God, to prove all these things, the truth of God, truth of His Word. And that uh, what I seek to do, first and foremost, when dealing with people who are arguing about the existence of God, is what I, what I want to establish first is that is that uh, that the, of the possibility that that there could be a God reason why is because if a person is coming from a position of atheism where they do not believe they categorically do not believe they don't accept the possibility that there is a God but they want to argue about this anyways what I want to do is I want to move them from a position of atheism to agnosticism okay agnosticism because atheism is against the idea of God. A theist. They're against God. No God. That there is no God. And they're closed to that. But if I can move them from the position of atheism to agnosticism, and agnostic is one that says, it's possible, there might be, that they are more open to. They don't know, but there could be, but they're just not sure. I want to move them to this. And that this simple little diagram is it does just that because if a person can look at this board and look at this uh, hypothesis and if they can say no i don't believe god could exist in the other half well there is no debate there is no question that they're completely closed off closed-minded and they're just they're just being silly uh, that they they've already made up their mind but if i show them this and they're like huh well, you know what it is possible it is possible God, yeah, yeah, God could exist in the other half, I don't know. You've just moved them to agnosticism. You're one step closer. And because you cannot debate about the existence of God with someone who's close to it. If someone is close to it, have already made up their mind, you can't, it's a closed discussion. But if you can at least get them to be open to it honestly, then you can discuss this. Now, the question as uh, they don't accept the whole creation argument well if you just look at the trees and look at creation look at the stuff look at the eye you know it's proof of god they don't uh, they say that that kind of argument isn't enough are there other arguments you could look at well there is one that i that i uh that, that i do use uh, to help people to understand the possibility of god is i like to use their their own belief i like to use their own belief now, an individual that, that's like this, generally, as you see, they come from an evolutionary background because they believe we evolved because they're trying to find proof of God because currently they're believing in evolution. Generally, 
90 plus percent of the time. This is what it is. So I like to use the evolutionary argument to prove God. Now, let, let me, let's, let's pretend you, you, okay, you play devil's advocate, all right? You play devil's advocate. You put yourself in the shoes of the evolutionist. You believe in evolution. You're not sure about God. You're kind of open to it now, but you're not sure, but you currently believe in evolution, okay? Hey, Luke. Do you, do you mind if I use you uh, uh, for the example of this? Okay, can you play the evolutionist for me? I, have, I have just have a couple questions I'm going to be posing to you, but I, I need you to, to play the part of the evolutionist. Okay? Okay. So, you're not sure there's a God. You're kind of open to the idea, but you're still searching. You're not sure, but you currently believe evolution. You believe we evolved and that uh, it all started from the Big Bang. Am I right in assuming that that's what you believe? You believe in the Big Bang and all this and that we came to be. Is that what you believe? Then the evolutionists would say, well, yeah. Absolutely. There's the Big Bang that ripped through and started all the planets and everything else, started the stars and, and uh, okay. Luke, are you familiar? Have you, you know about Stephen Hawking? Stephen Hawkins? You know about Stephen Hawkins? Are you familiar with him much at all? He's done a lot of work in the field of mathematics and physics and um a fantastic powerful powerful mind in in math and science and all of this he says unfortunately yes <laughs> okay uh, are you familiar <clears throat> with stephen hawking's work in regarding other dimensional planes and how in his describing how we're on the third dimension there's a fourth dimension fifth dimension all this other that he, he tries to work at, work through mathematics the other dimensional planes of existence <clears throat> you familiar with that because my my uh my question <clears throat> okay luke my, my question is okay you believe that the Big Bang ripped through the cosmos and started different galaxies with the planets, life evolving here on the third dimensional plane. Do you then believe, as Stephen Hawking's believed, that as life evolved here, on the third dimensional plane, do you believe that life could exist on another dimensional plane of existence? That is, life happened here. Do you believe life could exist on another dimensional plane of existence? <clears throat> because according to the evolutionary model, 
life evolved here and that that means life could exist elsewhere in our universe i.e aliens you know little green men on mars or whatever life could exist elsewhere in our universe it says of course okay life could exist another dimensional plane of existence okay what do you call god angels in heaven but beings and places on another dimensional plane so you see the evolutionist the atheist it, it does not deny the possibility does not deny the possibility that life could exist in another dimensional plane of existence like Stephen Hawking's did. What they are against is the terminology. They fully wholeheartedly believe life exists in another dimensional plane. They just don't want to call it God, angels, heaven, hell. They just don't want to call it the Christian terms. It's term bias. That's all it is. It's religious discrimination term bias is all it is. But they absolutely believe in the possibility. They believe in the possibility. They just don't want to call it what we call it. So you want to prove God? Turn the tables back on them. Show them that they already do believe in God. They just don't want to call him God. They already believe in heaven. They just don't want to call it heaven. They already believe in angels. They just don't want to call them angels. There you go. All right. <clears throat> Here's a question. On Reddit and Ask a Christian, here's a question. You tell me. What do you think? What do you think? Is it a sin to get a monk's blessing? My parents are Buddhists. While I converted to Christianity, they're going overseas and one of the places they go to is a temple where the monks will bless whoever goes there. I'm thinking about getting a blessing. Is that wrong? Is it a sin to get a monk's blessing? Now, you may be quick to say no, or even say yes. But what I like to do is, is, to, is to not just outright with a blanket answer. But rather, what I like to do is work it out, and I like to ask the question, why? Ask questions. Ask lots of questions. Interrogate words interrogate meanings interrogate the the details of what's being said what's being done at the circumstance interrogate it and figure out the reasoning figure out the reasoning how is it sin if it's sin how is it sin if it's not sin how is it not sin don't just make blanket statements but let's just look at this is it a sin to get a monk's blessing well would it matter would it matter if it was a Buddhist monk or a Roman Catholic monk? Would it make a difference? Well, what are they a monk of? And see, this is where we need to look at. Now, they may be a very nice and loving and friendly and warm and whatever else. Oh, sure, absolutely. Not a problem. 
lot of people are nice. A lot of people are nice and kind and all this, but that that doesn't mean anything. That means nothing. Even if they are a Roman Catholic monk, they're devoted to God. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Which God? Well, the Christian God. Yeah, is he really? So he believes in the Lord God, Jesus Christ. Well, yeah, they believe in the deity of Christ, who saves by grace through faith by belief alone. Well, no, no, we don't believe that. We, you know, the redemption through Mary, and you got to atone for your own sins in purgatory, and you got you to ask the dead saints to help you, and Mary to intercede for you, and that she was sinless, and, and she didn't even die. She ascended up to the, to the hand of God, where she is, the, she is the most important part of the Godhead, and that she has to bring, you have to call on her because Jesus is too angry, and he won't talk to you. You got to go through his mommy. And that she intercedes for you and you got to earn your salvation by good works and, and you got to suffer in the flames of purgatory until you're holy enough to enter the bliss of heaven. Oh, so not the God of the Bible. So w would it be wrong for a devoted zealot of a false religion to bless you? See? Reword it. Reword it. Would it be wrong for a devoted zealot of another religion to bless you? Okay, hold up a moment. By what power then are they blessing you? The So wait a minute. So they're blessing me in the name of their God? That's not the God of the Bible? So therefore that would be a devil and not God. So hold up. Wait a minute. You're telling me, you're asking if it's okay to have a monk... Of a false god, i.e. a devil, to bless me. Is it wrong? You see, when you interrogate the question, when you ask the questions, you work you work it around, you, you inspect the details, the words, the points, the examples, all the, and all the stuff going on here, and then you rephrase the question, it answers itself. And answer says, I don't even need to tell you an answer. You know the answer. But nonetheless, is it a sin to get amongst blessing? Yes. So yeah. Um Okay, here's one more. We'll we'll end the Reddit questions with this one. Here's a question. What does Quotation marks, Satan is the father of all lies mean. What does Satan is the father of all lies mean? All right. For this, to, to, to understand this, you got to understand who he is. Who is Satan? Satan, uh, the Satan, which is the opponent, the opposer, the enemy of God, uh, who is Lucifer, who is the anointed cherub. And he, full of pride, said within himself that he will be like God. He will ascend to the throne and, all, and, and that he would oppose the Lord and he would take the throne. This is what he was. He, he got so deceived and deluded about himself because of his power and his beauty and everything else. And he deceived a third of the angels that stood in the presence of God. Now, think about this for a moment. Just this point. Lucifer... Is it was able to deceive one third of the angels that stood in the presence of God. And you think you can protect yourself by barely reading your Bible through the day. 
want to throw that one out there. Anyways, he deceived a third of the angels. Now, with what? His lies. He crafted arguments and points and reasons and topics in such a way that he was able to deceive and delude a third of the angels to side with him against God. And then in his, in his form, he in the Garden of Eden, Lucifer, it was not a talking snake, but rather it's Lucifer who is called that serpent, that dragon, that beast, that father of lies, that evil one. That like a serpent, he in his form of a cherubim deceived Eve by saying, Yea, as God truly said, ye shall be as God, knowing the difference between good and evil. Again, lies. The father of lies is the, the father, the creator, the, the one who, the originator. The originator. He is, the, he is the originator of all lies. He's the first liar. He's the first deceiver. He's the first one to delude. He's the first one to corrupt. He's the first one to oppose the Lord, to twist the words of the Lord, to question the veracity of God, to teach false gospels, to teach a false way. He's the, he's the first murderer. He sowed murder in the heart of Cain and caused Cain to kill his brother. He's the first, he's the, he's a, as Jesus said, he's a murderer from the beginning. He's the father of lies. He's the enemy of all righteousness. This is who he is. That's what that means. So there you go. Something to think about. So again, like I said, what you want to do is you want to interrogate the question, interrogate the words, the points, the details, all these things, flesh it out, get a deeper reasoning, and figure out where is the question coming from? What what's the insinuation? What is it what, what is it that that they're holding in this? Where is it where is it coming from? The beliefs of the individual that's asking the question. Don't just look at the question, look at the beliefs of the person that's asking the question or where the question is coming from. And this will really help you to know how to work apologetics even better. All right. Okay. Let's back up in the comments here before we wrap this up. Is there anything I missed? Let's go down through. 